What's up, guys? It's KP, Connor Pringle here with AB, Andrew Brown. What's up? CB, Connor Bame. Yeah, yeah. Big Jack, Jack Sprague. What's up? And guest appearance, first time, Nate Dog, Nate A-Man. Howdy, howdy. Woo! <laughs> We're here talking about the Elite Eight and Sweet 16 over the weekend, uh, the NBA trade deadline, college basketball coaching carousel, and potentially some NBA MVP debate talks. So yeah, let's go ahead and get kicked off with the first game from the Sweet 16, Oregon State uh, versus Loyola Chicago. Yeah, these are two kind of Cinderella teams. Both have had a hard path here. Loyola had to go through Illinois. Oregon State had to go through Tennessee and Oklahoma State. So this is probably a game not many people had in their bracket. Uh, it was one of my favorite games because of the battle of the 101-year-old Sister Jean versus 101-year-old Bud Ossie. Uh, Bud Ossie took this round. I hope they'll be around too if they if they make it there. <laughs> but uh, Sister Jean is no longer a witch. I'll say that. Bud Ossie's kind of the the hero now. But yeah, it was kind of an ugly game, defensive battle. But yeah, Le- Leola Leola took the L. I had them in the final four, but Oregon State advanced to the lead eight. Yeah, I was really impressed with that game. Uh, Oregon State really surprised me there. Didn't see them beating North Chicago. But yeah, on to the next one here. Baylor versus Villanova. And uh, Jack, what did you think of that game? Yeah, that game, it, I mean, Baylor, we, we knew they were going to come in there and win. We knew that uh, Villanova, they were shorthanded without Connor Gillespie. And that honestly just, the whole team's different when they don't have their, their best three-point shooter, their go-to score. Robinson Earl, he came in there and he played. He played a tough game. Got five off- offensive rebounds and had eight points to go along with twelve boards. But I mean, Baylor they they just manhandled that game. They um, forced Villanova to shoot under twenty percent from three. They out rebounded them. Had more assists. Forced fifteen turnovers. They only had five. And I mean, Villanova they were just outmatched there. Jay Wright he's obviously a great coach and he he kept them in it for a little bit. But Baylor they were they were just the better team. They got done. Uh, Butler and Teague, they didn't play that well, but Mitchell, Mitchell, uh, he, he ran the show along with Flagler. Mitchell's actually, he's, he's super explosive. He's one of me and, uh, Connor's favorite players, and they, Baylor, they just, they're too tough defensively, and they came out with the dub there. Yeah, I agree. I really think Baylor showed a lot of toughness that game. They had a really sh- bad performance from, uh, Butler and Teague, but they were really able to really handle Villanova after the first half. Uh, but yeah, on to this next one, Arkansas or Roberts. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take that one too. Uh, I love Oral Roberts; they're my dogs. I uh, I thought they had some up, some upset potential earlier, early in uh, the bracket, and they they made it to the Sweet Sixteen as a 15 seed. So that was nice to see. They they beat Florida the round before, so we knew that they they had some uh, they're head hunting some of these SEC teams, and Arkansas ended up winning by two. But Oral Roberts, they played a a great game. They they have that offense that just keeps them in it. A Smith had twenty five points. Opener had a twelve eleven. We've been talking all all this tournament about how they're the best free throw shooting team. So they're that's going to keep them in it. Arkansas honestly didn't play that great of a game. They the only thing that really kept them in it was they they out rebounded uh, or Roberts by ten, but they only hit one three. They went one for nine. That's just that's awful. Moody didn't play that great. He had fourteen points on uh, twenty shots. But they had four players score over 12 points, and they were just more physical. And at the end of the day, they were just the more balanced team, and they, they got the job done. Yeah, and like we highlighted last week, um, some guys who we felt have helped their draft stock with the tournament. 
I think we mentioned Justin Smith, and he had another good game. He had a double-double. He didn't score as much as he's been scoring. He still had 14. But, um, yeah, I was impressed with Arkansas. I was just in that game. Uh, or Roberts just kind of took oh, it. Oh, oh. Also, to add to that, uh, they actually almost pulled it out. A. Smith, uh, I forgot about how he almost hit that game winner, but that, that team, it was a great run, and it was nice to see them in the tournament, too. Yeah, he had a pretty good look there. But, um, yeah, on to the next one, uh, Houston versus Syracuse. And, uh, Connor, you got anything on this? Uh, yeah, this one was kind of a rock fight, you know. Uh, this game wasn't particularly close, honestly. I was Houston kind of dominated defensively. Buddy Beheim, what was he, 3 for 16, couldn't really get anything going. But, yeah, Dejan Giroux was the real story of this one. He kind of locked down uh, Buddy Beheim. He was the American Defensive Player of the Year. And he, he puts up – he flirts with a triple-double like every time he's out there. I love his game. And he kind of just epitomizes Houston basketball. Tough defensively, nothing flashy, just is going to get the job done. Yeah, I can add on to that too, actually, because – um. Yeah, Buddy Beheim. It's unfortunate to see him out of the tournament. Uh, just a triple threat score, all three levels. Release is too high. You can't really guard it. Um, he backs down to the elbow, gets the turnaround J. It's nothing but nylon, pun intended. <laughs> yeah, his game reminds us of a, of a South Carolina intramural legend, Jake Doobie. We had to run up against him, and he, he ended our intramural hopes last year. So that's who he reminds us of. Yeah, Jake, if you're watching, man. We love you. <laughs> yeah, all right. Here, on See to the next one. We got Creighton and Gonzaga. And, uh, Connor, I think you also had some on this one. Uh, yeah, Creighton and Gonzaga. Like A.B. said, this kind of, one was kind of over before uh, it started. You know, Gonzaga is just a dominant team. Creighton made a good run. I actually had them losing first round, but they had a good run. But Gonzaga is just too good. Drew Temme continues to rise up draft boards with this play. And honestly, I mean, Kispert, Suggs, that whole team, even Nimhard, I mean, they have they have five guys on a team who can beat you. So that's a really tough team to beat, and Creighton really didn't stand a chance. Yeah, when Nimhard's your, you know, your fifth scoring option, you're looking pretty solid. You know, you're looking at five guys that could be uh, playing at the next level. So it's tough to compete with. Yeah, I agree. That team looked really impressive. Uh, then we got Michigan and Florida State. And this game, you know, I really was high on Florida State. I haven't really been as big on Michigan. Most of the season, really, they've proved me wrong. But especially recently without Isaiah Livers, I thought that was going to hurt them a lot more than it did in March. It finally uh, caught up to the lead eight, but we'll get to that later. But this game, they dominated, honestly. They held Florida State to five, five of 20 from three. They um, out-rebounded them, and they held them to just 10 assists, which means they weren't even sharing the ball. Florida State was going ISO. They were trying to beat Michigan that way, and Michigan's too good of a team defensively to let that happen, and they just honestly throughout the game just dominated that game. Uh, Florida State only had one guy scoring double figures, and you're not going to beat a good team doing that. You need some more help than that. Florida State's been known for their depth, so it's kind of interesting to see how that depth looked pretty terrible up against Michigan, who's a team who I didn't feel like had all that much depth. I thought they were kind of riding with some really good players who were playing really really well recently, but I thought it was going to catch up to them in this game. But, no, they dominated this game. It was never really a question. But that's how it goes. So here on to the next one, we got Bama and UCLA. And, uh, A.B., you got anything on this? Yeah, man. I mean, this was just a hurtful game for me to watch, man. This was the only game I missed in the Sweet 16 round, and it was, unfortunately, my champions that lost. So, that's disheartening. But uh, the story of this game just has to be the performance of the SEC Player of the Year, Herbert Jones. 
and just how completely he underperformed. I mean, it was just an embarrassment. I mean, he had multiple chances to win the game, and he just folded. I think he ended up with less than five points. I mean, just did not play well at all, and the whole team didn't play well. They shot 11 from 25 from the free throw line, and that's never a good recipe for his success. And uh, the main thing that kind of – two things that stood out to me really is uh, how well Hawkeyes played uh, when Juzang fouled out. He really stepped up, and he I think he won in that game, UCLA, at the end because Alabama kind of had some momentum, and he just kept stepping up uh, with two minutes ago in the regular uh, end of the second half and in overtime. He just played phenomenally. And uh, one other thing that I'm, that's just going to be remembered, I think, is that Reese shot and just what could have been. I mean, that's one of the biggest shots I've seen in tournament history and they just can't find a way to win it and that's disheartening yeah you know you see a team make a shot like that going into ot you know it seems like that team's probably going to win but there's a couple instances just this tournament where a team that was hot going into overtime came out short honestly and that in overtime it wasn't even really close usually it just came out swinging and bama just could not score it seemed like which kind of surprised me but yeah i really liked what you're saying about the free throw line, I think that was a big difference because they both shot 25. UCLA made 20 of them. Bama made just 11, and that that's the difference in an overtime ball game. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so on to this next one here. We got USC and Oregon. And this game, I had I was on USC. You know, Oregon, they had just beat Iowa, but USC has just been kind of bashing teams and still not really getting any respect for it. Uh, they get it from a lot of different outlets, too. They got the Mobley brothers, of course, but then you got – Edie and White, their two guards, who combined for 42 in this game. They had four stars of 10+, plus, the two Moby Blairs, and then those two. But no one saw that coming from those two. They came out guns blazing. They are shooting the ball so well. They had, they shot 57% from the field and 59% from three, which is just a crazy shooting display. And if you got that paired with those two guys that I've been naming inside, the Moby Brothers, it's going to be tough to beat, especially when – you win by that margin, and Omaruri goes for 28-10, and 10 and Duarte also goes for 21. Yeah, I just want to kind of piggyback off of that and just kind of give my kudos to the Mobley brothers because they really stepped up. But uh, really what impressed me and made me fall in love with the Trojans was their defense, man. And uh, they can play the zone as good as Syracuse and anyone else. They are just so long, so athletic. And uh, – Coach Altman's uh, quote at the end of the game really stuck out to me. He said, uh, I didn't have them ready for the zone. I thought we were, but their length and athleticism athleticism really bothered us. And, I mean, that was so evident throughout the game, and it really got them over the top against Oregon. Yeah, the zone really whooped up on Kansas, and then Oregon was no different, really. It was a little bit better, but not any better. And then, so, yeah, we'll move on here to the Elite Eight games, and you got Houston versus Oregon State. And this game was was ugly. It was not a pretty game. Oregon State never had the lead, and Houston led by as much as 17, but they didn't do it pretty. I mean, Houston shot 32% from the field, 34% from three, and 67% from the line. So, I mean, that's pretty terrible splits, and they still cruised to this game for the most part. Oregon State kind of came back late, made it interesting, but... Houston's guards combined for 48, so that's where the majority of their scoring came from. Only 19 points outside of that. But, as I said, Oregon State never led. Houston won the rebound battle, of course, 41-29. They won the turnover battle. They just do the little things, like we've been saying, and that's how they win. They don't do it ever pretty. They aren't really that talented offensively, but they just get the job done. They force you into uncomfortable situations. They play great defense. And you saw, again, they run ran another team that was shooting hot from three-pointer off three-point line. They did it in Syracuse. Oregon State was another victim here. 
Yeah, to add on to that, uh, Houston, they, they played great defense. They forced Thompson to have not a great game. He, he only had 11, and we knew that he was going to have to go out there and perform, obviously. Oregon State was going to want to have a chance, and Kalu came off the bench, and he was their leading scorer with 13, and he only played 13 minutes. So he also had a clutch three that kept him in a little bit at the end, but Houston, they, their defense definitely won them that game. And, I mean, they, they played pretty they, – Played pretty soundly, and Quentin Grimes, he, he knocked down a couple buckets at the end, too, but Houston was obviously the better team there, and they showed it. Yeah, for sure. And that's, then you had Baylor versus Arkansas. Yeah, I mean, this was a big-time game. Um, I had the uh, Razorbacks winning it, but, I mean, Arkansas has just kind of played with fire one too many times this uh, postseason. They started out the first round trailing by 14 against Colgate, and then even trailed by 12 against Oral Roberts, but... When you trail by 18 against a team like Baylor, there's no way you can come back from that. And I really have fallen in love with this uh, Baylor's Bear team over it, throughout the tournament. I mean, this team is so impressive. With, when you go up and down the roster and look at the depth, when you look at Mitchell and Butler and Macy Oteague, and even guys coming off the bench like Flagger and uh, Matthew Mayer, those guys can drop 20 points any game. And uh, then you also have Mark Vidal, who's probably one of my favorite players in the tournament. He's just so tough. Um, Baylor really impressed me this game. It, um, I think if there's any team that can beat Gonzaga and throughout this year, but in the tournament, obviously, it's, it's going to be Baylor. And they proved, to get, they proved that to me against Arkansas, who was a really athletic team, but Baylor just looked so far and superior in their athleticism against an already athletic team like Bay- Arkansas. Yeah, I can add on that. Uh, add, add on to that, A.B. Uh, you know, talking about the depth, uh, mullet man Matthew Mayer, uh, Oh, my God. Can we talk about the mullet for a second? <laughs> Beautiful piece of hair. Uh, but, yeah, him and the bears and the mullet are going to be dancing their way in, into the ship. Sharpie. Right. I like it. Yeah. To add on to that, uh, I think that you uh, forgotten this game is that uh, Note off the Arkansas bench, he only played 15 minutes, but he had a super efficient 14 points and he had two threes, two for two. And he fouled out early into the second half. I think it was about 14 minutes left. And I, I thought it was a questionable decision to even have him out there because he was probably the hot, the highest scorer on Arkansas' team. And he he fouled on the defensive end and then went right back and he, he uh, caused an offensive foul a charge. And I think the game would be completely different if he was on the on the court and his uh, foul trouble was managed a little bit better because he's out there, he's scoring. He was leading Arkansas in scoring and ended up leading them in scoring. So I think that he was on the court, on the court a little bit more, that they they would have been in a little bit more. But I feel like that was a little bit questionable, but I guess there's not much you can do about that now. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. They really needed someone like that to score because Baylor put up 81 points. So obviously they're, they're, they're a type of team that if it gets into a trap meet type of game, they're fine. They can run up and down the court. They can score really easily. And, uh, yeah, Arkansas never led in this game. Baylor came out 29-11, nine minutes into the game, and it was kind of over after that. Arkansas made it more interesting. They went on a little run in the half and then kept it close to the second half. But it felt over pretty early. Yeah, I just wanted to say one kind of crazy stat I found for you Razorback fans out there. Note's 5,015 minutes is the quickest foul out by a Razorback in an NCAA tournament game since Dwight Stewart against Syracuse in 1995 when he fouled out in only 12 minutes. Pretty crazy. Golly. I also saw another stat um, about Note is that he only fouled 15 times in his last like 387 minutes 
So it's kind of crazy. A lot of people are blaming refs, but uh, to, for him to get 5,015 minutes is pretty insane. Yeah, because he's obviously that shows that he's a pretty disciplined, disciplined player. I mean, 15 fouls over that many minutes, that's that's really, really good. And then having 5 and 15 is horrible. <laughs> it's insane. That's just a crazy turnaround. But, yeah, on the next one, we got Gonzaga and USC. Yeah, so that one was a battle of the bigs, you know. Going into the game, everyone's wanting to talk about Mobley. Everyone talks about Timmy, but uh, yeah, that one really wasn't as close as I thought it'd be. I thought it'd be a better battle down low, and this one really proved a lot to me about Drew Timmy. He had such a good game, even on Mobley, and uh, I, I think this really improves his draft stock a lot. I honestly thought Mobley would kind of dominate that one, and Gonzaga would have to win with their guards. And even Jalen Suggs, he had a great game too, almost triple-doubled. And that's the thing about Gonzaga. It's hard to beat him because Kispert's going to drop 18. Suggs is going to do his thing. Timmy's going to do his thing. And they just have so many ways they can attack you that it's just really hard to beat them, especially when you're a team like USC where you kind of have to play your best game to beat a team like Gonzaga. Most definitely. Uh, yeah. USC had four stars with 10-plus, and it didn't matter. Zags dominated the whole way throughout. Yeah, a couple things that uh, stood out to me was – First off, obviously, that uh, Jalen Suggs came out and he just he, he played a great game and he had over 21.5 points, rebounds, assists. So shout out me for hitting that bet for all you guys that keep tailing me out there. Uh, I, I didn't want everyone so off. And um, another thing that stood out to me was I thought the Mobleys, I thought they were going to come in here and I thought they were going to play a stingy game and they were going to have trouble scoring inside. Jalen Suggs and uh, Kispert were going to shoot, go out there and shoot the three, and they were going to pull it, pull away maybe at the end. But the the Mobley brothers, they they only had two steals and no blocks combined, which I I don't have the stats in front, but you can look at it all year, and you probably can find maybe one or two games where that where that's the case. So the Gonzaga, they're just really disciplined, and you can tell that uh, they were the better team in this one. And Timmy, obviously, he, he had to have played a great game to go out there and. Uh, contain the Mobleys like that. He had three steals himself, so he just made the Mobleys look like just the younger, uh, less talented, less talented boys out there. Yeah, it's the kind of thing you type, you, you hear about, you know, uh, freshman going up against, you know, the senior, the big guy, his experience, he's been there, and he kind of took it to him, you know. He's just more physical, he's a bigger player, and he's smarter. He just, he dominated that game. Him, Kispert, and, and Suggs combined for 59 points, so. That kind of will tell you the story. But on to the uh, Michigan-UCLA game. Yeah, so this one was one of the best games of the entire tournament, basically just off the end because it was a pretty ugly game, you know, super low score. I think the final was 51-49. But this, the whole story of this game is Johnny Juzang. He had 28 of UCLA's 51 Golly. points. Golly! And uh, that's really just putting the whole team on your back. Their second leading score was 11 and besides that, their leading score was four. They didn't have a single bench point. It was really just Johnny Juzang versus the whole state of Michigan. <laughs> and even Michigan, they only had 49, and Dickinson was the leading scorer at 11. They didn't even have another double-digit score. Wagner had a really rough game. Some qu- questionable decisions at the end, you know, taking a three and airballing it while they're only down one. And then he missed the final shot, too. Nothing you could really do about that one. Kind of just .5 seconds, chucking it up, but... Yeah, just really Johnny Juzang, you know, he might be the story of March, the way he's been playing. 
you know, he's kind of putting in his name with that Carson Edwards, like we said, first <laughs> first episode, you know, him and Max Avis, <laughs> kind of like the March Madness legends. So I'm excited to see what he can do against Gonzaga next round. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, he went as far in the tournament. Actually, sorry, he went farther than Carson Edwards in the tournament. So I guess he's not, that makes him on a different tier. He's in like the <laughs> March Madness elite. Well, Carson Edwards has the most points per game ever out of any March Madness player. Whoa. I'll just say that. Mic drop. <laughs> now, uh, one other thing I want to add on to the Michigan game, though, is everyone's going to talk about the uh, Wagner air ball three, wide open, which is obvious. you got to knock that down. No excuses there. But Eli Brooks had a chance to win that thing with a Yeah, he did. But he smoked that thing. I, mean, I think he, he rushed it, too. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's unfortunate because he probably is going to think about that for the rest of his life. But he had five seconds, take some time, but it is what it is. And then they come down with Mike Smith in the following possession, put up a three. Yeah. It was a good look, too. So, I mean, Michigan, you had the looks. It's just you flopped. <laughs> Most definitely. But, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's a rundown of all the games. But I think there's some storylines that we could – talk about you know of course the Pac-12 domination they advanced they had three teams playing ball on the at the Elite Eight the other day which no one predicted we actually have a friend who said that they might not even win a game in the tournament but here you are three teams in the Elite Eight no other conference had that notably the SC the Big Ten only with one after having a bunch of dogs Big 12 only with one two but um ACC zero, but yeah, it was it was kind of interesting to see some of the big conferences really struggled this tournament. It seemed like all the top dogs, Big Twelve still got Baylor rolling, but I feel like that's a little different. That team, like just everyone knew they were gonna make it, but every other team from the Big Ten, the Big Twelve, SEC, ACC, you know, you're not talking about them anymore. They're out of the tournament, so. Yeah, I just thought that was really surprising because there's so many good teams true. coming out of those leagues and they've been good in the tournament over the years even, but this year it's just been different. There's some teams in there that haven't won in a long time, so I think it'll be cool because I'm pretty sure every single coach remaining would it'd be their first ever championship if they won. So no matter what happens, I think a coach is getting his first ever title. And unless it's UCLA, the university would also be getting their first title as well. So I think that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> Yeah, another thing I'd like to add, I forgot to mention it uh, you, during the UCLA-Michigan rundown, but shout-out to Mick Cronin. He's done an insanely great job coaching this team. They lost Deshaun Nix to the G League earlier this year. They lost one of their best players, all-Pac-12 performer Chris Smith, uh, to injury earlier this year. And Even being during the regular season, kind of down year for UCLA, 11 seed in the playing game. And for him to get this team all the way to the Final Four is just a testament to how good of a coach he is. Yeah, and only year two as well. That's something that's interesting because a lot of year two coaches with success this tournament. Uh, Arkansas, year two, had a muscleman, and he took them deeper than most people would have seen. Uh, Alabama has Nate Oates. There's a lot of coaches from that cycle that are seeming to do really good work right away. Uh, Juwan Howard, Michigan. I mean, it's crazy to see two years into the program that you had those four teams that are all high seeds and all playing well with the exception of UCLA. They were low seed, but they're the they're the ones still standing. So that's crazy. But yeah, here we're gonna go. On I to also, I, hey, hold on. I also have a couple things to add to this UCLA this UCLA Michigan game. I just I just cooked them up in my head. Um, <laughs> so first off, this was a beautiful game. This this had a little Big Ten like football feel to it. Just the threes weren't falling. It was low scoring. It felt physical. Nice defensive matchup. But I have some beef with this game because 
I was watching it and with about like 50 seconds left. Uh, and then within the span of like 12 minutes, it went to like six seconds left of the game. I felt like the game took forever. The end of it, obviously, you need to get some of the calls right. But I felt like they were going to review or there was a timeout every like six seconds of the, at the end of it. So I ended up falling asleep with like two seconds left. I didn't get to see the air balls. So rip. <laughs> but I, I, I love this game. And also, shout out to Nate Dog on the podcast right now. We watched this Michigan-UCLA game about five years ago when Lonzo Ball was on UCLA. And this game was... The over-under had to be set at about 190 because they both scored about it over the 90s. So this was nice to see that in a couple of years that they both got their defenses figured out. But I thought it was a very interesting game, and I'm, I'm glad it came down to the wire. Shout out UCLA. Yeah, Jack, appreciate the shout-out. Uh, that was a fun game to watch. But let me ask you this. You mentioned the uh, the slow-paced ending to the game. So do you recommend the Elam ending makes its way into college hoops? What was that? It's the ending they use Excuse the, me? in the basketball tournament. It's There's a certain amount of points, and once you get, reach that point threshold, it's just it's like a, you play to 10, and that's the end of the game. It's not time uh, to a certain amount of points. Yeah, it's the same format that NBA like that. games use the last two years. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that. Or, or they could just flip a coin, and then, then whoever wins that one, then the fan base can just like go – rage on Twitter about how the, the call didn't go their way, but either way, make, make, make it quicker. I, I, I'm just trying to get in bed by 11 o'clock, so <laughs> these, these games are tough for an old man like me. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know about the Elam ending. I think it's a great idea, but I like the basketball in the traditional sense, and in these March games, I think there's reasons basketball's been played this way for this long, and it's not because people don't like watching it. But yeah, so let's move on to some of these... Uh, and some of the coaching hires that we've seen the last couple of days, even the last week or so. Anyone have anything that really they feel like stands out, a big hire or anything? Um, I'll go with one that hasn't been announced yet. But uh, I think everyone's starting to really see about or hear about uh, Chris Beard at Texas. That seems to be like a locked-up deal. And one thing that I found out today is uh, his buyout at Texas Tech drops down $2 million tomorrow, which is Thursday. So they might be holding off a little bit just to kind of save them some cash. But I think that's going to be an interesting one that might develop. I think it would be an A-plus hire. He loves the state of Texas. He knows Texas. He knows the university. He was a student assistant there when he went there. And he's just a great coach, man. I think he's proven himself at the past, I don't know, what, three or four years to be one of the best, if not top three best uh, coaches in college basketball. So I'm excited to see if he's going to take the job with the Longhorns. Yeah, like, like you're Hold saying. Hold on there. Hold on there, hold on there, hold on there, AB. I got a, I got some news for you. Let's Father of the swing offense, Bo Ryan, conspiracy theory that he ends up in Texas right. after beating Kentucky at four years ago when he beat Kentucky undefeated in Arlington, Texas. He beat Duke in Arlington, Texas, so he has some good, he has some good juju there. But also, guess what team he beat for his last one of his career? Texas A&M, Corpus Christi, right in the heart of Texas. He loves Texas. He's going to come out of retirement. Hall of Fame coach. They're get, the booster's going to write the checks. He has the experience. Straight, straight to the moon. Take it to the bank. <laughs> I love it. All right. Bo Ryan to Texas. That'd be awesome. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, you know, I really liked uh, the hire by Utah. No one's going to talk about this because who cares about Utah, but – they hired Craig Smith. He was the coach at Utah State. You know, 
Utah State, whatever. They made two the last two years. They put got and they're gonna have two NBA guys off of that team. Last year they had Sam Merrill, and this year Namas Keita's definitely gonna end up in the NBA. I don't care if he's on a G League team or whatever you want to say, but he's gonna be playing ball. He's gonna get paid for it, and that's that's a good job at Utah State. So I think if he can get to Utah with just way better resources in the same state. He obviously knows the state of Utah. He just coached at Utah State. He can have success there. I mean, they've been good re- recently. I mean, just a few years ago, they had DeLon Wright. They've had some good players come out of there. So I think they could come up in a what normally is pretty weak Pac-12, and I think they can make some noise. I really like that hire. I know that's an under-the-radar one. No one's probably heard of that. But, yeah, uh, Jack, this one I'm going to ask you about because you were just talking about Texas and – your mom is an alum at Marquette. What do you think about Shaka Smart going from Texas to Marquette? Man, I can definitely see that. For some reason, I just in my head, I can just picture Shaka Smart just rocking downtown Milwaukee. I feel like I feel like you fit. I feel like you fit in there well. I feel like you recruit. I feel like DJ Carlton being his point guard just seems like it's destiny. I don't, I don't know. That might just be me, but I feel like you fit in really well there. I think. Obviously, he's qualified for the job. He, Texas was a three seed this year, and Marquette they make the tournament. But I feel like they have some talent on their team, and I feel like, I mean, I don't want to give Marquette ideas because I don't want them to steal my badge of recruits. But I feel like he could go into Wisconsin, steal some of those dudes out of Madison. So I think I think that'd be a great hire. I, I like where your head's at. Well, Jack, I got some news for you. Shaka Smart is the coach of Marquette. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, Jack. He I mean, did, did, did he really? You already got hired there. Yes, he got hired, and he is from Milwaukee. Actually, I think that has a lot to do with it. So, he yeah, he's replacing Steve. I think from in there that, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, you. I mean, your yeah, analysis is right on. I guess they were seeing eye to eye. Because yeah. man, I honestly now that you say that, I, I'm gonna be honest. I don't. I don't like that hire because now he. I mean, I feel like they, they might start running Wisconsin a little bit, but. I mean, Greg Gard, he's not worried. If Shaka Smart and uh, Greg Gard were eye to eye, Greg Gard would probably have to look down on him. So, I mean, I think I, I think we still run that today. I mean, <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not too worried about Shaka. He he has his hair now, so that that's a little concerning. He, hair Shaka, he's a, he's a probably he's a little bit more there than the the bald one. But I mean, we'll see where that goes. I, I guess we'll have to teach him a lesson too. He, he'll know who the the men are of Wisconsin are. <laughs> Yeah, Wisconsin starts losing, they can just hire Bo Ryan again. Yeah, there we go. I mean, Bo Ryan, he's ready. He's 72 years old, but, I mean, I'm sure he's still out there get him from jogging and stuff, just ready to start yelling at some refs, swing that ball around. Yeah, and another under-the-radar hire that I really liked was Earl Grant going from College of Charleston to Boston College. Boston College sucks at basketball. They have sucked. They suck now. And, you know, before they made this hire, I would have said they will suck. But I do think that they will be better now. I don't get why Boston College is bad at basketball. They're in Boston. They are the university in Boston other than Boston University. But who is going to Boston University to play basketball over Boston College? I mean, it doesn't make sense. They're way smaller. Boston College plays in the ACC. I mean, you got a chance there. I feel like that's a big enough market. And, you know, Boston College – I think they they can be turned around. Like I said, they're in Boston, so that that should work. And I think he's a fantastic coach. Coast College of Charleston is not really a team that needs to be getting talked about when talking about basketball teams. But 
he made them a pretty nice program. This is a disappointment that they make tournament this year, but last year they made it. They had Grant Riller, and he ended up getting a second-round pick to the Charlotte Hornets last year. So he's done that kind of work at College of Charleston. He can definitely, I think, make some magic happen at Boston College, maybe even just get them to a team that's fringe tournament because I don't know what their ceiling is, but not what it is right now. And I think that he can do a little bit better job than Jim Christian did there where it seemed like, that team, if you saw them on your schedule, was just you thought of it as basically an automatic win. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I really like that hire too. Um, I, but this is I love talk, talking uh, coaching carousel. It's probably I could talk about it all day. So I'm gonna merge two together real quick. I love the uh, UNLV hire with Kevin Kruger. Um, that is a not only is it a phenomenal hire as a head coach, but you're gonna have a really good uh, kind of uh, I don't even know if it's an official role, but Lon Kruger is one of the best coaches in college basketball. He just announced his retirement because he wants to go back and live in Las Vegas to spend more time with uh, his son Kevin, who just obviously got the job at UNLV, and spend some more time with his grandparents. So that's gonna be a just a double whammy hire there at uh, UNLV. That's gonna work out really well for them, but it also opens up the Oklahoma job. And I think this is one of my sleepers, but I think Oklahoma is one of the best jobs in the country. And you're, you kind of think about it real quick, and you're like, dude, come on, what is, what's, what's in Oklahoma? But it's a football school. But that can also work to someone's advantage when they're a uh, basketball coach there. You're not going to have all the pressure that uh, – uh, what's the head coach's name at Oklahoma? I'm drawing a blank on his name right now. The head coach, Lincoln, Lincoln Riley. Riley. Yeah, Lincoln Riley. He's not going to have the pressure Lincoln Riley is, but he's still got all the resources to be <laughs> successful there. I think it's just a perfect job. He's got, he can hop on a plane and go visit a recruit, go watch a game anywhere in the country he wants. It's just a phenomenal job. And I could all absolutely see Porter Moser of uh, Loyola Chicago heading there. Uh, he's got what every man wants, and that's leverage in a situation. Uh, what more can you do at Loyola Chicago? He's done more there than any coach ever probably could have or anyone expected him to do. So He's in a nice, pretty spot where he can take a pay grade whether he stays or leaves. So I'm excited to see what comes out of Oklahoma. Well, one thing about Porter Moser, if he goes to Oklahoma, he's not going to bring Sister Jean with him. Nope. That's his lucky charm. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I do think he's a great coach. And another thing I'd like to add about even the Texas job, I think it will end up being Chris Beard. But I would love to see them consider Becky Hammond. She would be the first female D1 coach and she's got some Texas roots. You know, she's a coach for the Spurs right now. And she actually played for the San Antonio Stars in the WNBA. And she was a legit player there. And I would love to see her get a chance to at least get an interview there. Yeah, that'd be cool, and man. And maybe progress to the first female coach in Division One someday. That'd be really cool. Yeah, you know, I, I like what you're saying about poor Moser. He's obviously due to get a job at a bigger program. But I think he's a Midwest guy. He grew up in the Midwest. I think he's going to stay there. I think he's not going to get picked up this cycle. I think he's got maybe another year where he'll be at Little Chicago. Even though if I were him, this is perfect time. He's got seniors leaving. But I think that he's going to stay because I think he wants to stay in the Midwest. I think maybe if a team was Illinois, like Illinois was knocking on the door or something like that, or a Big Ten school, maybe something like that. Because he's expressed how much he likes living in the Midwest, and he loves living around the Chicago area. So... I'd be surprised if he left Little Chicago and went out to Oklahoma, but that'd be a slam run, uh, slam dunk hire for him. <laughs> Home run, slam dunk hire. But uh, yeah, I'm gonna wrap it up here on the coaching carousel with talking about my my dog, Mike Woodson, Indiana Hoosiers head ball coach, and uh, you know everyone's talking about Chris Beard, Brad Stevens. I I'm tired of it. 
we're not going to get those guys, man. Let's be realistic, all right? Stop getting your head big. You know, I was saying Brad Stevens, but that's because my head got big. And I, <laughs> I shrunk my head. So I thought, started thinking of more realistic candidates. You know, you're hearing guys like Dane Fife, assistant at Michigan State, Mike Woodson, assistant on the Knicks. Guys like this, you know, guys who have Indiana roots, played at Indiana, have coached in Indiana, at least have something. Mike Woodson is the coaching hire, and he played for the Hoosiers on the last team to go undefeated in the Natty. 1976 Hoosiers. He played there. He's a freshman. He was there from 1976 to 1980. But yeah, he's taking over Archie Miller. And this guy, you know, he's from Indianapolis. He, he, he will recruit the state of Indiana. He can pitch guys with, hey man, I've been an NBA coach with the Hawks and the Knicks. And, you, and I did well there. He took the Hawks to the playoffs. He started that rebuild. And then with the Knicks, not many people know this, but he actually revolutionized the way offense works in the NBA. He was the first coach to run a four-out, one-in active system, which is just about what every team runs now. It just means, you know, you got your power forward outside instead of two guys posted up. And that really is the way the game's played now. So I think that with his emphasis on that kind of system, which, of course, requires three-point shooting, that he can bring Indiana back to what, like, it ought to be. Like, even if you remember Tom Crean's teams, you know, Tom Crean had his problems, but his teams were... I felt more of an Indiana-type team than Archie Miller's. Indiana basketball is about good shooting, like an offensive game, guys who are hustling. And the last few years, I feel like we got away from that. Mike Woodson, I feel like, can do a better job recruiting guys from the state of Indiana. We've lost some big commits in this most recent cycle. And, uh, yeah, I just hope he can bring some of these guys back from the transfer portal. But I think that's a good hire by the Hoosiers. And I think that with Thad Mata advising him and the staff that he's probably going to be able to build, being from the NBA and having a lot of connections, that could really be good for Indiana to make this hire. But I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I was wondering if we could have some... You good, Jack? Sorry, go ahead. All right, appreciate it. Um, yeah, I go ahead. I was wondering if we could have some dialogue on the Indiana hire because personally, I think it... I gave it a D plus, and I thought I was generous with it, man. I mean, he's. I, That's kind of where I'm at too. Yeah, I mean, I, and I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad that Indiana fans are excited because that's a great university and it's a big basketball school and they, they deserve some good success uh, in this lifetime. Um, the things that immediately stand out with Mike Woodson to me is uh, he's an old man. He's 63 years old. He's never coached college. He's never recruited college. Uh, he wasn't up for any other jobs in the NBA or in the NCAA. So. Uh, it's just you fired uh, Archie Miller for $10 million, and then you replace him with kind of like a Mike Woodson guy who you no other competition really out to get him. You could, I, I just think you could have waited another year maybe to get him. Um, and then you just look at his success on the court, and there's just not that much. Um, he's been fired from his last two head coaching jobs and has a career losing record with 50 games below 500. So, I mean, these are just some things that kind of stand out to me as. Uh, some potential warning signs for the Hoosiers with Mike Woodson. Yeah, you know, those things, I, I like. I hear what you're saying, and I guess maybe you just might not understand where I'm coming from, but Mike Woodson took the Hawks from 18 wins his first year and then made them a three-year straight playoff team. They just never got out of the second round, and that's why he was canned there. And, you know, that's that's just, I understand it. You know, you got to be able to win in the playoffs. But then with the Knicks, he took them to their best record, record in the last 20 years in 2012. And then, um, you know, he got fired, but it was mostly because of front office moves. He was the coach when we signed Joakim Noah to an $80 million contract and stuff like that. So the roster ended up being gutted at the end of his reign, and it kind of hurt him bad. So we were rebuilding kind of the last two years of his tenure. But 
he was let go, but then he's brought back this year on Thibodeau's staff. And, I mean, if you listen to anyone talk about him, they only have good things to say. I can question his recruiting because, like you said, he's never coached in college. But I liked what he said in his press conference. He was talking about how, yeah, I've never recruited college kids, but I've recruited NBA guys. I've recruited guys to come to our team and buy into that type of thing. So I think that I can use that to translate over. And we'll see if he's right. I mean, a lot of people have said it's a Juwan Howard type hire, but I don't know. I think it could be good, but his age is somewhat concerning. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, Mike Woods. Hey, KP, I have a a question, too. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, So I I saw on Twitter after they announced that uh, Mike Woodson was the coach that, um, like, some of the players had announced that they were staying or transferring. So just just from a Hoosier fan and getting up to date, like, are the players taking the hire well? Have anyone announced they're transferring, staying, or undetermined? Like, what's going on with that? Yeah, so uh, today uh, Aljamie Durham, who was a senior on our team last year, he wasn't expected to come back, though, because he was going to grad transfer. It seemed like he might have gone that way anyway, and he committed to Providence. But, uh, you know, yeah, a lot of the guys that entered the portal, with the exception of one guy, Race Thompson, a lot of the guys are underclassmen. They're young guys, and I expect them to come back because – I don't know how much of a uh, market there's going to be for them, and also I think that they know that they have playing time if they come back. This is going to be a pretty bad roster next year probably. I don't expect immediate success, honestly. Uh, It's going to be a young team, new coach, totally different style of play. It's not going to be the same type of offense that he wants to run, at least not as effectively because he's not going to have his right guys. But I don't know. I think that we'll be able to get some of the most of the guys back. Durham's gone, and I could see maybe – Grace Thompson leaving too because he's kind of he's about to be a senior so a lot of times when guys get older they're more willing to leave when there's a coaching change like that because like they're like yeah. he's got one year left of playing ball you know whereas these other guys yeah. freshmen and sophomores they're going to be starting for the next two or three years probably if they come back so I think that those kind of guys will come back but I could I could see Grace Thompson leaving yeah I make sense yeah and one thing about Mike Woodson I'm kind of in between uh, AB and KP I'd say I'd say more incomplete. Uh, I, I like to hire, you know, second African American ever to coach at Indiana, and he's only the 14th in Division One. Um, but yeah, you know, he played for Indiana. He was a baller. Played played in the NBA a long time. 14 points per game in the NBA. But yeah, kind of incomplete. He's never done this before. I think he has potential to be a good coach, but it's just kind of a risky hire to me because he's never recruited. He's kind of an advanced age. And uh, also, you know, I, I do like the hire of Thad Mata, though. Thad Mata's been a really good coach, the winningest coach at Ohio State all time. So I think that's kind of being slept on when you talk about Mike Woodson, is that he, it's Mike Woodson and Thad Mata. So I think that'll, that could end up being a, a good tandem. Or, you know, Mike Woodson could just end up not being a good coach, kind of like the, the past couple they've had at IU. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that is true. I do like that model a lot, especially since he coached at Butler before Ohio State, so he's familiar with Indiana, and that, that can't hurt, you know. But, yeah, so uh, that's enough on this uh, coaching talk. Let's wrap it up here with the NBA trade deadline. Let's get some little notes in on what we thought of that, some winners and losers maybe, just recap the top trades. So here with this first one I'm going to start off with, uh, Nuggets get Aaron Gordon and Gary Clark for Gary Harris, RJ Hampton, and two future firsts in a deal with the Orlando Magic. I really think Aaron Gordon can help the Nuggets. I think that he's basically like a Paul Millsap type player, except for he's just younger and he's better at what Millsap is currently doing. So I think that that's a really nice fit for them. And they didn't really have to give up any immediate impact players. Like RJ Hampton, yeah, he might end up being good. 
and they got two future first, but those are down the road. And those, with the way they're built right now, it seems like they'll be good for a long time. So those shouldn't be high picks or anything. And they get a guy, Aaron Gordon, who's still young. So I like, I, I really like this trade. I don't think they have to give up too much. And I think the Nuggets got a lot better here, but I don't know. I know uh, AB and Connor are big Nuggets guys. What do you guys think? Uh, I I love the trade because well Aaron Gordon you know he's he's athletic and he's the same size around as Kawhi and uh, LeBron and if you're gonna compete with those guys you need some athletes that can d up with them and they really didn't have that with Millsap or even Gary Harris and another thing I hate the bash on a player but as AB and I know watching a lot of Nuggets games Gary Harris just is not a great player and even just kind of getting rid of him is a positive but then adding a player like Aaron Gordon too. That, that will help the Nuggets a lot. I don't know if it's enough to push them in the, the Clippers, Lakers talk, and even the Jazz, but uh, I really like the trade. Yeah, I really like the trade, too. He's just super athletic. He's going to be able to score for you. And that's something that the uh, Nuggets kind of lack, or they did like before this trade. Um, but I'm not the biggest Gordon fan, personally. Um, I don't like the way he acts, really. I think he's he acts like a baby, honestly. He, he's talking about wanting a new start. He's, it's a fresh start in Denver, and yet he decides to wear the number 50 because he's so pissed off about the uh, dunk contest. That he scored Wait, the, is that real? Yeah, no. Oh he, he wanted to wear number 50 because he's put up such great dunks and just never won a dunk contest. So that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It was kind of a little weird. But um, one trade uh, that I really liked was um, – what the Hawks did, and I think uh, one of our friends, Spencer Black, will appreciate this, as uh, they acquired Lou Will, who I think is a phenomenal scorer in the NBA, and they got him for pretty cheap when you think about what with uh, Rondo. I don't think he wasn't the answer in Atlanta, and I think he kind of served his purpose in serving as a mentor for uh, Trey Young. But going back to Lou Will, I mean, he's just a proven scorer, and He's going to be a great number two scorer for Atlanta, and just an, like I said, just an absolute steal. And I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think they're now a lock for the NBA playoffs. I think it's 100%. They're going to make it to the East. I don't know how many games they'll win or if they'll even make it past the first round, but they're going to they're making it into the NBA playoffs, guys. Yeah, Lou Will, he's from the ATL, so that's kind of a homecoming for him. He used to play for the Hawks. And, you know, we all know from the bubble last year, one of his favorite places to go is Magic City. <laughs> you know, Lemon Pepper Lou. So, uh uh, I think he's going to play really good there. Yeah, I, I like Lou Will as a player a lot, and I really think that that might hurt the Clippers a little bit, losing a little bit of that bench scoring. But I don't know about the fit on the Hawks. I think he can be another great bench scorer, but he can do that anywhere. And I think the Hawks need defense, and they just traded their only guy that can play any perimeter defense. And I think that's going to bite them in the playoffs. It won't really bother them in the regular season because they'll just outscore people. But when they're starting to play really good teams in the playoffs, they're going to get smoked up because Trey Young, he can't, he's a liability. Every single player, except for maybe DeAndre Hunter and Capella, is a defensive liability. They all have a terrible plus or minus defensively and bad defensive ratings. But this team will be really fun to watch, watch on the offensive end. And it's, they've probably won this trade, but I don't know how much it helps them. Uh, yeah, and then another one I think which I really thought was interesting was the Heat Rockets trade for Victor Oladipo because I thought that the Heat got a really good deal and I but I know why they got a really good deal they got Oladipo for just Olenek Bradley and a 2022 pick swap which is a really small haul for a guy who is a couple years removed from being an All Star and All Defensive player but he's not that player anymore. And also, he, the way he was acting in Houston was kind of prima donna-ish and just made me kind of lose respect for, for him a little bit, which was hard for me because, you know, I'm a big Oladipo guy. He went to Indiana. I don't really like the way he's 
playing right now because when he was recruited, he was only like a three-star, and he kind of just worked really hard, and he gained that reputation. And now it's like he's a totally different person. He's like act, He acts like he's a superstar now, which I guess he, he was playing like a superstar, so he got that mentality. But I think he, being with the Heat will be good for him. I think maybe he'll buy in a little bit over there with what they're doing, and Spolster is one heck of a coach, and I think he's going to get something out of him. And I really think that with the combination of that and – how little they had to give up. That's 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 a great trade for the Heat, and they're not committing any money the next year. So even if it doesn't work out, they're just paying it for this season, and then they'll be open up the houses. And they have the second most money coming into twenty twenty one free agency. The Knicks have the first, but the Heat are second. So I think that's something to keep an eye on. If he plays well, they can resign him. But if not, they've still got money. They can maybe make a, a fix this offseason. We'll see. But oh, one one of the trades I had my my eye on. Uh on the trade deadline was the the Bulls. They went out there and got the Booch from uh, the Magic. They got uh, Vucevic and uh, uh, Aminu. And they, they one of the things that popped out to me looking at the haul they got they had to give up for him was they got rid of Otto Porter's contract, which was just awful to begin with. I questioned it right from the beginning when he put ink to paper on it about four years ago, why he was getting that much money. But one of my hot takes was that Wendell Carter Jr., uh, my our boy Nick, he's not gonna like this. He's a poor Bulls fan. Is that Wendell Carr? He's gonna he's, he's gonna end up. He's gonna turn out. He's, he's not gonna use his rate. The Bulls just not, seems like a weird fit. He's gonna go to the Magic. He's gonna get the ball a little bit more. They they, they gutted their team, and they also had to give up two first round picks. And I think this Bulls team, they obviously aren't ready to make a run and at the championship. And maybe they think they're at that point now trying to go out and get an All Star center. But I think this team's still a little bit too young to start making a a run at the title, and I feel like they gave up some picks and a young center that could turn out, could could not, for an all-star center that I feel like kind of stepped up just a little bit on a, on a crap team, but I thought that was an interesting trade. I, I mean, he could definitely turn out in Chicago, but uh, my hot take on it is that the Vucevic trade ends up not panning out. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of like what you're saying because I really like Vucevic as a player. I think he's fantastic. He's so underrated just because he played in Orlando for so long. But I agree, I agree. With that being said, the Bulls are still like seven games under 500 right now, and they're not in the playoff. They're not in the playoffs right now, and the teams ahead of them, I don't know, man. You got a bunch of teams that are a lot better than they're playing right now in the East. The Raptors are lurking down there. The Heat are pretty low. The Celtics. I mean, these teams are going to rise. Even the Pacers are down there. That they're not quite on the same level, but they're still a playoff team, in my opinion, usually. So I think that the Bulls, while they made a, a, a trade for a really good player, it's not, it's not the right idea. I think they maybe should have gone with a guy who could have maybe helped them more long term, who is younger and more affordable, rather than giving up picks because I, I, I don't know how giving up picks really helps a team like the Bulls they're really young I think I'd try to yep. get as many young players as I could but hey maybe they saw, I feel like they saw an opportunity I think it'll work on offense I think him and Levine can be a great pick and roll combination with marketing doing the same type of thing just fading a little bit more than rolling but I don't know I think I do have concerns about that because it seems more like a win now move when they're probably gonna miss the playoffs this season so then maybe next year but i'm not so sure we'll be even ready by next year but we'll see I, it's an interesting yeah something to keep our eye on for sure does anyone else have any other trades they'd like to dig on 
Uh, this one isn't about a particular trade, but I kind of got a winner from the deadline, and I'll go LeBron and the Lakers because all the teams are competing with the West. Really, the Jazz, if you want to count them, they didn't really make a move, and even the Clippers, the biggest move they made was trading Lou Will for Rondo, which you could argue hurt them or helped them, but it wasn't anything big. And the Lakers didn't really do much either, but they added Andre Drummond on the buyout market, which helps them. And really, I think they're just kind of a winner because no one else made a move to kind of overtake them. And I do see LeBron making it out of the West again. I think it'll be a battle with him and the Clippers, but I do see them making a, making out of the West because no one else really made a move at the deadline. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I really like Andre Drummond, dude. I think he is so slept on, and we kind of touched on it last podcast. Kind of, uh, we kind of predicted this happening, but... I have found out a stat about Andre Drummond that is pretty impressive. So the Lakers just acquired the greatest rebounder of all time. Let's just go out and say it, and that's always a that's always a positive. Uh, he's Dennis got the Rodman? yeah. I mean, <laughs> let, let me give you a Rodman stat. So Andre Drummond has the highest rebound percentage in NBA history at twenty four point six percent, and Rodman is in second with twenty three point four percent. So I think that's pretty impressive. If you go uh, Drummond, Davis, LeBron at the three, four, and five, good grief, man. This is, I mean, I'd love to see Rudy Gobert try to work on that, man. Yeah, and if you think even deeper, if they, I mean, they have to get out of the West, obviously. But if you go to the the Nets, their weakness is big men. Absolutely. They don't. I mean, they're who's their center normally? Like if they have everyone healthy, like they're kind of using KD as the five, or even like Jeff Green. And DeAndre Jordan's been playing a lot, but he's kind of a liability, and he's not in the closing lineup too much. So if you have AD running out there, or even Andre Drummond, those guys are going to just get every rebound and just dominate in the paint. And so I see that being a pretty good series. I still have to go to the Nets right now just because of the star power, but I think this did kind of help the help push the Lakers closer to the, the Nets. Yeah, I agree. I think it kind of moved the needle more towards the Lakers because the Nets have just been making what feels like splash after splash. You know, a little bit, it, it's a little bit overblown in Absolutely. my opinion because... I think Jeff Green right now is playing just as good a ball as Blake Griffin. Blake Griffin's going to draw way more headlines. Probably better. Way bigger name. Yeah. But, yeah, Jeff Green right now is probably a better player than him. And I think the way Claxton's even playing, I think he's pretty close up there with the way Aldridge is currently playing. Aldridge is not Aldridge right now. He, no. He's not the guy who leads the NBA in, like, mid-range points for the no. last decade. That's not him. And I think I – think, uh... People are going to be surprised with the minutes Aldridge is going to be playing for the Nets. I think I don't think this is going to work out well for the Nets. I think he's going to take away minutes from Claxton, and I think Claxton's better than Aldridge. I've seen Aldridge play for the last few years at San Antonio, and every year he has digressed. Um, he's just not the player he once was. And Oh, digress, bro. That is not the right term. <laughs> Regress. Regress. <my laughs> uh, but he's just not what he used to be, and I could just see this not working out for the Nets. Um it's going to be interesting to see, but I'm just I'm not big on Griffin and I'm not big on Aldridge, but it's going to be interesting to see who makes it out of the East. Obviously, Nets are the front runner. Yeah, I got another thing. Uh, for one of my losers of the deadline, I, I put KD's legacy. Ooh. Because uh, I, it wasn't really about a trade, but kind of the buyout. They added Blake Griffin and LaMarcus, who, let's be real, Nick Claxton and Bruce Brown are, and Jeff Green are even better players than them. But when you look at it in five years, the five to ten years, everyone's just going to look at the names on the roster. 
and they're going to be like, KD could only, I mean, it is a super team, but that makes it even look worse in 10 years when you see Aldridge, seven-time All-Star, and Blake Griffin, six-time All-Star. Yeah, they're going to think they had all five of these guys in yeah. prime at once. We're going to be talking about people down the road. And, and the narrative is going to be KD couldn't win without a super team. Which, and he's an outstanding player. And It's an unfortunate that he's picked up that narrative, yeah. but he's done it to himself. He's only played. Yeah, I wish he kind of went at him like he said he would with, with Westbrook and but yeah, I mean, it, he's a great player. I really hope he somehow gets a ring on his own, so he doesn't have to deal with this to, forever. Is it? Is it confirmed that KD is now cheese butt? <laughs> oh, he's cheese butt. Yeah. Hey, we're, we're LeBron. <laughs> there. Is there any other trades anyone talk about? Or are we gonna go ahead and wrap it up here, guys? Uh, I'm all good with trades. I don't have anything. To... Yeah. All right. Uh, so yeah, for uh, KP Connor Pringle. A.B., Andrew Brown, C.B., Connor yeah. Bame, and Big Jack, Dex Brad. We're going to go ahead and sign off here on episode nope. two. Uh, surprise, actually, we're going to have another episode this week for the final game. I think it'll come out on Sunday. We might even do one for the final four and the final game, but we'll let you guys know via our Twitter account at Nylons and Pylons. Go ahead and follow us on there and on Instagram as well. But, yeah, so uh, good episode here, guys. Let's see what happens this weekend.